Hi, this is Pastor Frank at First Discipleship. I just want to welcome you to this podcast. This series of episodes are dedicated to evangelizing Native American Indians. My goal is to talk about some of California's history to bring clarity and myth-bust stereotypes, the accepted Eurocentric storytelling, untold or suppressed information, and fabricated lies of history. So to continue uh, and connected to the last episodes that I've done on as a Christian Native American, I want to be able to just give a quick explanation uh, of missions work. Now, uh, here in uh, 2022, missions are far different than what we read in, in history, specifically in Alta California during the time of the, um, let's just say the 14, 15, and 1600s, it was very important to understand the difference between the two and contrast them. Now, missions today either is going to be a vacation for people who don't want to actually do missions work, or they actually go and uh, forsake um, all their worldly ambitions and really focus on bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who have not heard the the word of God and also the salvific message that would um, give them hope and and hopefully better themselves in some of the decisions that they make the way they live and continue to do the same thing. Now, um, usually that the missions work is done uh, um, ambitiousless uh, and really done in in light of love and love for a person's soul and and for their well-being, uh, spiritual well-being and their health. See, these types of things I think we could understand now. We would be, we would even donate money to be able to help people to get to that place to help people to either for, you know, the expenses to get there and to get back or even to, uh, for the expenses even to stay there. But, but it's a noble thing. It's a good cause because we know that that's what they're going to do. Now, in contrast to what I'm going to talk about in this podcast is completely different. Now, so um, there are some things here I think that we need to understand, and I'm going to explain to them. And the reason why I'm doing this is so that you can have a better idea, an articulated idea about the difference between what actually happened, what we're told that happened, and the effects um and how it happened. Now, I'm not going to cover the effects and uh, long-term effects. So just you can kind of see where this is going. So let me begin with this. Missions work is within the fivefold ministries of Bible Scripture. So, the Catholic Church gained scriptural authority to do this more than likely in Ephesians chapter four, verse eleven through thirteen. And that's describing the fivefold ministries. This is the, where the, the authoritative aspect comes from. So the missionary or mission missions is a term for using two of the fivefold ministries, evangelist and apostle. So basically, a church planner and a traveling preacher. I would believe that the authority of Scripture is in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, Acts chapter 13, verse 47, Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 15, and Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
Now, this is where I truly believe that they have gained their um, missions or their um, the the Great Commission, where they would get their authority of Scripture religiously to actually uh, evangelize. Uh, well, what the Scriptures actually say, actually say is to evangelize or to go out into the world and bring this message, uh, the gospel, the good news to um, people who have not heard it. So, first century evangelists and apostles are far different from the Alta California missions and missionaries. Just want to make that clear. The difference is entirely on motive. I'm going to say that again. The difference is entirely on motive. So there is a larger scale of motive that we're not told about. So this information, I believe, uh, is suppressed but not hidden because it's basically suppressed in basic history, like what you would learn in school growing up, either in elementary school, in middle school, and high school, and more than likely probably even um, junior college or college because this is not something that is too important, I guess, to them. But depending on what you study and exactly uh, the field of study you want to go into to wh- or what you have to learn that's conducive to, say, like a degree, this is what some of the things you'll probably find out and be more than likely upset. I would assume that, that most people, when they hear this kind of information, they're, they get upset. And they're wondering why they're not told, you know, early on. So the larger, more panoramic view is a geopolitical and geo-religious race of Spain. Now, I know Portugal's in there somewhere, and I know that uh, France is in there somewhere, and I also know that Great Britain's in there somewhere. But this is specifically, okay, geared towards Alta California. So in the Eurocentric geopolitics of the 1500s, the New World translates to potential land acquisition in the name of a kingdom. I got this from an article. Uh, The first Europeans to arrive in Japan was by accident in 1543 a Portuguese ship was blown off course by a typhoon, shipwrecking the sailors on the island of Tanegashima, off the southwest tip of Japan. So the Portuguese introduced guns or firearms to the Japanese in 1543. More than likely, the Portuguese traded this technology because Japan was so developed and it did not need certain goods that the Portuguese normally traded with other people. That's assuming that the Portuguese were more advanced uh, explorers and traders, that they would have something that most people don't have things from what they come from or from other places in the world, because that was a really big thing because everyone everyone's isolated. Japan, it was very advanced. So there are certain things that they had or they didn't want, but one thing they didn't have was gunpowder. Uh, well, to the extent of uh, the gunpowder needed to fire 
weapons like uh, rifles and pistols, muskets and such. Since Japan operated in a feudal system, there were precautions regarding how to have political relations with the Japanese. Now, at the time that the Portuguese accidentally landed in 1543, the Japanese were uh, on their way out of a feudal system and going into another system and that had a lot to do with uh, power struggles uh, within their country and civil war. So Euros of the 14 and 1500s used precaution when matched with political and militaristic development. Now I want to stop there for a second and kind of try to, you know, just unpack that. Many places that uh, the Portuguese, the Spanish, and Great Britain, where they landed or were the things that they were discovering or where they were, you know, mistakenly, you know, finding different uh, lands would really depend on the development, technological developments or social developments and, and to really see what they're, what they're all about. Let's just see how strong they are and then we'll deal with it from there. I've always noticed that approach in, in history while reading. So European land acquisition brought confrontation in the form of politics or militarism or both. I would assume the reason why is because the approach, because they were always looking in, in order to conquer or to take over hostile, either militaristically or through politics. There was always some kind of what can we get? What, how can we acquire this? It's always with that push and that mindset. How could we get more? And of course, that brings a lot of problems. So that, but see, that's the first two approaches of their arsenal, I believe. And then, but there's a third one. So the logical spearhead would be to use religion as a tool or source of a passive, harmless entrance. In this case, Christianity. Why? Is because Christianity is characterized by love for all people. Christianity's built-in component of evangelism and apostolic work as a God-given command to all Christians came in very useful politically with the missionary and the mission system. So this leads me to a controversial person, Junipero Serra, and the Order of the Franciscans and Jesuits. Junipero Serra, teacher, pastor, evangelist, a scholar. Okay, let me stop there for a second. When I say scholar, that means that this man knew a lot of history and also, in his time, the current thought pattern of the church, uh, the current uh, affairs of the world. So he wasn't a dummy. He was, he was a very intelligent man. And a lot of those, uh, friars and, and the priests at that time were very educated because really that's all they had to do. Learn the Bible and then learn church protocol. 
So for myself, I don't consider myself a scholar, but I do know what happened in 1492, and I do know what happened in 1776. Being a native, I should know. I know that that the uh, the war between Great Britain and the colonists, uh, and the the war that ensued, uh, was won, and the United States became a sovereign nation away from the kingship or the aristocratic rule they had over uh, the people in the United States taxing them and such. And, and so they, they fought and they won their independence. Like I said, I'm no scholar, but I know what happened in the Civil War. And I also know what happened in the 1950s and 60s with the civil rights. There's a lot of things that I know just by reading, just by watching movies, by watching you know documentaries and such, researching and and watching uh, speeches and 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 people teach on certain subjects, you you learn through the years uh, doing independent study. Now, if I can do that, okay, and I can go back up to three to four hundred years of my own country's past, I would apply that to someone who is a scholar, which is Junipero Serra, and anyone else that was in in his range of people that he associates with. So I I can't really sit here and give him a pass that, oh, he was just this, you know, naive person that, you know, entered uh, into what, you know, he felt he was called to do blindly out of love. There are some facts about Sarah that a lot of people don't know, and some who studied this know. But Sarah never entertained leaving his location or what he was doing. And he was content with his current position. The known world was full of people that needed to hear the gospel, but the evangelistic need never enticed him to go to them. The new prospect of new minds in a new land, somehow his mind was changed to leave his contentment notoriety. Sarah always seemed to be at the top of his class. He always seemed to be the one that stands out. And he always seemed to be the one that was academically ahead of everybody. But what gets me is that whatever reports that he heard of current events, okay, whatever that was going on in the church, because they didn't have, you know, ways of communicating like we do, like the internet, um, satellite. Communications were very low. And, and, and so what they had to do is they had to talk or write. And so when new things come up, it spreads very quickly uh, by word of mouth. So hearing this, okay, next thing you know, he's arriving in New Spain. He attended one of three Roman Catholic Franciscan colleges, San Fernando de Mexico. So these colleges that were uh, built in New Spain or and or Mexico, and here are the here are the three that were built there. The College of Guadalupe de Zacatecas was a Roman Catholic Franciscan missionary college or seminary. 
founded in Guadalupe, Zacatecas, by the order of Friars Minor between 1703 and 1707. The second one, the College of San Fernando de Mexico, was a Roman Catholic Franciscan missionary college or seminary founded in a Spanish colonial Mexico city by the Franciscan Order of Friars Minor in October 15, 1734. That's the one that Sarah attended. And then the College of Santa Cruz, they, let me see if I can pronounce this, Guerrero, was the second Roman Catholic missionary college or seminary in the New World to train missionaries. One of its founders was Damien Massenet, the college founded in the later 16th century. The institution was established to provide specific training for priests who were to work among the indigenous populations within the Spanish colonial viceroyalty of New Spain. Now, that all being said, and, and just kind of recapping some of these things that we're trying to, well, what I'm trying to expose and give information, give timelines and give specific places, uh, people, uh, certain years and in, in the, in the time frame of all of this, when, when all this happened, um, you know, between the politics and the, um, the race, uh, for land acquisition, of a new lands, uh, so, so-called discovered. This is something that was where, where I'm trying to figure out who gave the permission to do this. Why is it, why does the geopolitical, the European geopolitical race of land acquisition only reside with them. Why does those laws apply to the whole world? And, and the, the laws, the, and the, the, what governed the, the natives of Mesoamerica and so-called North America, so-called South America, what, what governed them that, that didn't count or that was something that they had to be subject to for what reason? I'm trying to figure out where that applies and how and who said that was okay. Now, there are things that I covered in previous podcasts about the Inquisition. And there are things that that were taught in these three colleges that I mentioned that were for, specifically for, training the priest to work with the indigenous populations within the Spanish colony of New Spain. But to find the curriculum or, or the syllabus of what was taught in these colleges is very difficult. Maybe some of you can help me out with this. But given the death toll and the devastation without any redirection tells the story. If you think about it, that when when things started to go bad or started to go south, why wasn't there any redirection you know, like this, this is not working. Let's try something else. It continued the same path. So I really believe that that tells the story. 
without it having been written down. Now, there are things, I will get into some of the things that have been written down, but that's later. So not being able to find the curriculum or the syllabus of the of what is taught in these colleges, but given the outcome, you can kind of tell what was taught. And then also, coupled with the Inquisition Manual, like the 800 pages of the Directorium Inquisition, Inquisitorium, that's what it is. Directorium is an Inquisitorium. This was composed in 1376. Fran- Franciscan Inquisitor's Manual and its compositional context, Codex Casa Natensis of 1730. And as a counter-reformation, because of the Protestant Reformation, as a counter-reformation, the Mexican Inquisition of New Spain from 1571 to 1820. I bet a lot of people didn't know that. So is it too much to say that the depth of research, dialogue, and explanation to write literature on the Inquisition to reach the definition of heresy, to keep orthodoxy, but directly to diminish or reduce the the percentage of heresy that's against the church or in the church, did this not in any way affect the way the Franciscan friars and the Jesuit priests approached the indigenous or native people? These three colleges, and then prior to that, the inquisitions and the types of inquisitions, that in no way, shape, or form that affected the treatment of the native people of Mesoamerica and California Native American Indians? Now, I would have to say that I'm building this case more so to be able to prove that there has to be a, a some kind of conditioning device and like I compared the Japanese to the uh, native uh, the indigenous people of the Americas and you and, and you take a look at Japan being at the the stage of their of, of feudalism having uh, samurais which were warriors, militaristically superior, fighting with each other in civil wars for power for hundreds of years, war after war with with steel swords, bows and arrows, horses, and then being introduced to firearms, they became a force to be reckoned with, is the reason why that Japan was never steamrolled. But they were dealt with year after year after year after year with petitions to the emperor to, you know, to, to become some kind of a ally or, or become some kind of a political 
influence that they could have on, on a country like this. But that was never extended to anybody in South America, Mesoamerica, and, and North America. That was not extended to them. They were dealt with like children. And, and I like to, I like to use the law of opposites. What if the Native Americans, the, 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 of, of, of South America, Mesoamerica, and, and North America, what if they were dealt with with such political precaution? With the respect of the way that the Portuguese approached Japan or the way the Spanish would approach say, Portugal or Great Britain or France, what if they were approached this way? Would we see a different outcome? But they weren't. The way I look at it, the way the the Portuguese and the Spanish looked at uh, the indigenous of of the Americas is that they were in the way. They were in the way so they could somehow exploit the land, exploit the natural resources, to make room for the elite, to be able to set up for the aristocrats. And and the only way the aristocrats are able to stay in power is for the working class or the blue-collar which would be the 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 colon the colonies like just like on the other side of the United States of the of New York and such in the East Coast. They had to colonize. And and then when you have a, a colonization of farmers, then you tax them. Or if and that way they could serve the crown. And so if you think about it. Because that's how it works. That's that's the European, the Eurocentric political dynamic. It worked over there. It could work over here. But here it's a it's a fresh, everything's fresh, untouched. Because in Europe they've used up all their resources. And they have to start buying from other other places. And so why buy when you can get it for free? And in their mind, yeah, they may cost a few of these, you know, natives' lives or whatever and just move them out of the way and we can take what we want. There's abundance there. They don't need it all. I could only imagine, you know, just to be a fly on the wall of what these conversations were like discussing the fate of people for natural resources. And that's where it's always been. But not with the natives. Completely different mindset, completely different way of life. All you have to do is study and you'll know. That's for another podcast. This is Pastor Frank at First Discipleship. Amen.